Welcome to Wild Trekker. I'm George Toombs here in Montreal, and this is the 27th episode. Wild Trekker is a series of podcasts, a writer's notebook, audio chapters from ongoing works, soundscapes, adventures, interviews with fascinating people, reflections, original radio plays, reportage, stories behind stories, jam sessions, and more. Wild Trekker is a fluid kind of sound art. I hope you enjoy it. I would like to share a few ideas with you this time about intuition and discovery, metaphor and myth. I've known many scientists, some of them Nobel Prize winners, who are highly imaginative people, able to think outside the box, and I believe their ability to break with intellectual conventions enables them to create new scientific knowledge. How do scientists do this? One way is to reach into the realm of myth and metaphor. When I say myth, I don't mean fable. Instead, I mean a founding symbolic story. Scientists have to write up accounts of their investigations, which means converting data and observations into language. This process of investigation and conversion makes science a part of culture. Myth is not foreign to the scientific enterprise. You may think scientists make observations, develop hypotheses, and stick pretty much to the facts as they see them, but they actually use myth and metaphor when it suits them. A mid-20th century articulation of the role of myth, and one that allows for the use of myth in the scientific enterprise, is provided by the historian of religion, Mircea Eliadi, in Aspects of Myth. He writes that the unconscious presents the structure of a private mythology. We can go still further and assert not only that the unconscious is mythological, but also that some of its contents support cosmic values. In other words, 
They reflect the modalities, the processes, and the destinies of life and living matter. We can even say, Eliade writes, that the only real contact modern man has with the cosmic sense of the sacred takes place in the unconscious, whether it be his dreams or imaginative life or the creations arising from the unconscious. Then again, on the subject of myth is Paul Ricoeur. The myth, he writes, is something other than an explanation of the world, of its history, and its destiny. It expresses in terms of the world, indeed of what is beyond the world, or of a second world, the understanding that man has of himself through relation with the fundamentals and the limits of his existence. It expresses in an objective language the understanding that man has of his dependence in regard to what lies at the limit and the origin of his world. I can provide several examples to demonstrate that myth not only serves scientific purposes, but is even an indispensable part of the scientific enterprise. William Rawley, in his 17th century preface to the original edition of Francis Bacon's The New Atlantis, alluded to the value of myth. This fable my Lord Bacon devised, he writes, to the end that he might exhibit therein a model or description of a college instituted for the interpreting of nature and the producing of great and marvelous works for the benefit of men. His lordship thought also in the present fable to have composed a frame of laws or of the best state or mold of a commonwealth. Well, I might add that the tremendous imaginative power of the new Atlantis is derived precisely from Bacon's conscious fabrication of a new myth. And the New Atlantis actually presents in mythical form the very architecture or structure of a scientific community, something that proved extremely valuable in the creation of the Royal Society and many other scientific societies around the world. Myth has also proven extremely useful to scientists since it provides graphic metaphors for things which cannot be described by direct appeals to facts. In the 20th century, for example, we grew accustomed to such mythical constructs in astrophysics as the Big Bang or singularity at the beginning of the universe, the Big Crunch or singularity at the end of the universe, the idea that the universe has a beginning and an end, the black hole or region of space-time from which nothing, not even light, can escape because gravity is so strong, a white dwarf or a stable cold star supported by the exclusion principle repulsion of electrons, 
the psychological arrow of time, our subjective sense of the direction of time, which is determined within our brain by the thermodynamic arrow of time. George Smoot's Ripples in Time, Schrödinger's Kitten, a mythical creature that Erwin Schrödinger invented to cast light on quantum mechanics and the nature of reality, and the Gaia Principle. Naturally, none of these examples are myths in the rationalistic sense of the word. Yet, as the Canadian astrophysicist Hubert Reeves has written, black holes are more extravagant than the most delirious fantasies of science fiction authors. On approaching black holes, matter is engulfed. Matter literally disappears, projected outside of time and space. And like pulsars, this object turns on itself. These atoms, once snatched up, could then escape. But where to? Nobody knows. Finally, I would like to expose the way in which myth and metaphor have sometimes led scientists to original discoveries. Stories are rife throughout the history of science of discoveries made on the intuitive basis of analogy. Did Archimedes cry, Eureka, I've found it, on stepping into his bath and so forming the theory of specific gravity? Could Isaac Newton have come upon the theory of gravitation when he saw an apple drop out of a tree at Cambridge University? Beyond such discoveries by intuitive means of analogy, there's also the fact that many visionary dreams have had a significant impact on the formation of new scientific theories. Examples are a dream which led to Descartes' theory of dualism, another which helped Descartes reconcile Euclidean geometry with algebra, and Dmitri Mendeleev's discovery of the periodic table of elements on the basis of a dream. Robert van der Kassel writes in Our Dreaming Mind, Friedrich von Kekule had been attempting for some time to solve the structural riddle of the benzene molecule. He fell asleep in a chair and began to dream of atoms flitting before his eyes, forming various structures and patterns. Eventually, some long rows of atoms formed and began to twist in a snake-like fashion. Suddenly, one of the snakes seized hold of its own tail and began to whirl in a circle. On the basis of the intuitions arising during this dream, Kekule developed a model of a closed ring with an atom of carbon and hydrogen at each point of a hexagon and thus ascertained how the benzene molecule was structured.
Another example of a visionary dream helping to resolve a complex scientific problem is provided by Albert Einstein. Silvano Arieti writes in Creativity, the Magic Synthesis, how Einstein's fantasies helped him to discover the theory of relativity. Einstein visualized himself as a passenger who rode on a ray of light and held a mirror in front of him. Since the light and the mirror were traveling at the same velocity in the same direction, and since the mirror was a little ahead, the light could never catch up to the mirror and reflect any image. Well, you'll tell me, it's obvious that a non-scientist, that is, an uninitiated person who had never spent years of study investigating such theoretical problems, could never have solved the benzene riddle or pictured the theory of relativity. But I would say it's worth noting that dreams, metaphors, have played a significant role in modern science. And I remind you that I'm using the word myth not as fable, something ridiculous which simply cannot be believed, but as a founding symbolic story. I find it interesting that the early church fathers developed a mythical alternative to scripture from within their Christian tradition, and they called this the Book of Nature. If the Bible was considered to be a first set of revelations, then for St. Basil, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Augustine, and other Christian thinkers such as Conrad von Megenberg in the 14th century, the Librum Naturae, or Book of Nature, was a second set of revelations. Methodical investigations into nature could thus teach humans about the mind of God in ways that complemented biblical stories. This is why we hear of the two books of Revelation. But wait, these two books tell completely different stories. What should people think if one set of revelations, for example, in the Bible, contradicts the other? in the book of nature. Now you're probably thinking, okay, but the book of nature is just a metaphor, a myth, but it's proven to be a very useful one in scientific thinking. Galileo Galilei lived from 1564 to 1642. He is the first to apply mathematics to an analysis of mechanics. He proposes the law of uniform acceleration for falling bodies, and he develops the astronomical telescope with which he explores the universe. Galileo also explicitly mentions the book of nature as part of his scientific investigations. For example, he writes that the book of nature is written in the language of mathematics. And then he says, philosophy, by this he means nature, is written in that great book which is ever before our eyes. I mean the universe, 
but we cannot understand it if we do not first learn the language and grasp the symbols in which it's written. Galileo's work has sometimes been presented as a passionate fight against the dogma of revealed religion, for example, by Albert Einstein in his 20th century forward to Galileo's book, Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. There's certainly something extraordinarily moving in the struggle of Galileo, a Latter-day Socrates, who fought the geocentric dogma of the Catholic Church in the name of intellectual freedom and who suffered the consequences of his defiance of authority through eight long years of house arrest at Arcetri in the outskirts of Florence. But the way in which Galileo defends the Copernican theory that the planets revolve around the sun is part of the problem. His insistence that a scientific hypothesis, once it's empirically verified, is absolutely true amounts to erecting a naive counter-dogma to match the dogma he's so assiduously attacking. Unlike Bacon, who's constantly trying to reconcile reason and faith, Galileo implicitly presents the space between reason and faith as a stark chasm, and the book of nature is a realm of investigation enabling him to better understand what goes on in the mind of God. For his part, René Descartes develops a mechanistic view of nature, and he proposes a four-part approach to knowledge, to accept as true only what is clearly recognized as such, to analyze problems systematically in order to solve them, to move from simple to ever more complex considerations, and to pass over everything again to ensure that nothing has been left out. This painstaking application of doubt as the foundation of knowledge, whether human or divine, consists in suspending beliefs long enough to test them in the light of reason. It's worth noting that Descartes' leisurely and ultimately psychological account of knowledge, which is slowly built up by means of systematic doubt and self-questioning, will not only result in truer principles, but also in a better life. Descartes actually reacts pretty sharply to the first two books, the scriptures and the book of nature, by replacing them with a third, the book of the self. Blaise Pascal is another important figure in 17th century science. He developed a model of knowledge, human and divine, quite different from Bacon. Pascal, inventor of the digital calculator and the syringe, and discoverer of Pascal's law of pressure and the principle of the hydraulic press, proposes to defuse the conflict between faith and reason by explicitly setting out the limits of reason of what is knowable. He writes, the ultimate working of reason is to acknowledge that there is a multitude of things which surpass us. Unless reason grasps this, then it is weakness itself. Our whole reasoning consists in yielding to emotion. We know the truth, not only through reason, but also through the heart. It is in this latter way that we know principles, and the struggles of our reasoning with these principles is vanity, since our reasoning has no part in them. So I've mentioned these alternative 17th century perspectives on the contradictions and complementarities of science and revealed religion. These perspectives are indicative of a slow shift of gravity from revealed religion over to science.
So I'd like to come now to the personality of the scientist, because this public image or personality is grounded in myth and metaphor, like some of the other aspects of science I've mentioned in this podcast. Throughout the history of Western civilization are to be found cultural archetypes, which, although not all strictly scientists, in our current day understanding of the term, have had a profound influence on the social responses to scientific work and intellectual freedom. I cite several of these cultural archetypes as examples of the interaction of myth and modern science, since their courage and ambivalence helped to explain how scientific thinkers could have developed such an exaggerated view of the scientist. A first archetype is that of Socrates, who apparently lived from about 470 to 399 BC. He was a moral philosopher who pursued knowledge by means of inductive arguments and universal definitions, and his practice of holding dialectics or conversations ensured that an ever greater number of young Athenians doubted and even ridiculed the conventional, often religious, wisdom of the time. Socrates serves as an archetype of the scholar whose single-minded pursuit of truth provokes the wrath of state authorities and who calmly accepts the supreme sacrifice of dying as a way of better defending that truth. With considerable pathos, Plato tells the tale of his mentor's imprisonment and self-poisoning of the wisest and most just and the best man of all whom we met at that time. As if to heighten the pathos, Socrates's jailer denounces the injustice of the philosopher's forced suicide, praising the nobility and gentleness of Socrates and seeking the latter's forgiveness. I'll mention now a second archetype. The philosopher king, it should be noted, is at the summit of the natural aristocracy whose wisdom makes the ideal state possible. Until the philosophers are kings in their cities, Plato writes, or the kings and princes of this world have the spirit and power of philosophy and political greatness and wisdom meet in one, and those commoner natures who pursue either to the exclusion of the other are compelled to stand aside, cities will never have rest from their evils, no, nor the human race, as I believe. And then only will this, our ideal state, have a possibility of life and behold the light of day. Well, like the example I just gave of Socrates, the philosopher king may seem far removed from the modern scientist. But wait, Plato intends him to be the aristocratic leader of an intellectual elite, a lover of knowledge, wisdom, and visions of truth, whose mastery of and taste for knowledge make him worthy to command, whose power over this sight-loving, art-loving practical class is derived from his study both of nature and ideas. In certain respects, the philosopher king is a precursor to the technocrat of modern times. He leads directly to Francis Bacon and the New Atlantis. I would like to mention now a third archetype, the figure of Ulysses in Dante's 
the divine comedy, whose domineering personality, arrogance, and relentless struggle to push back the frontiers of knowledge earn him a place in the eighth pouch of the eighth circle of hell among the fraudulent counselors. In the divine comedy, Dante, writing in the early 14th century, recounts an idealized, mythical passage through the torments of hell, then spiritual rehabilitation in purgatory, and finally the fulfillment of spiritual completion, the healing of the rift of exile and eternal union with God in paradise. In Dante's view, the pride and paganism of Ulysses assure him of a lasting place in hell. Rousing all his eloquence and resourcefulness, Ulysses speaks to his fellow sailors as follows. Brothers, I said, O you who've crossed a hundred thousand dangers, reach the west to this brief waking time that still is left unto your senses. You must not deny experience of that which lies beyond the sun and of the world that is unpeopled. Consider well the seed that gave us birth. You were not made to live your lives as brutes, but to be followers of worth and knowledge. Dante's Ulysses suggests that the free spirit of knowledge is a kind of hubris which carries an implied threat in medieval times. It's like a seductively fatal invitation to embrace falsehood. But in our modern-day context, this speech of Ulysses actually sounds like lyrical praise of the adventure of science. I'd like to come now to a fourth archetype, King Solamona in Bacon's The New Atlantis. A king, as Bacon writes, with a large heart, inscrutable for good and wholly bent to make his kingdom and people happy, whose benevolent dictatorship consists in keeping his subjects in blissful isolation from the rest of the world, instituting a house or a college for scientific investigation, that is, for the finding out of the true nature of things, whereby God might have the more glory in the workmanship of them and mend the fruit in the use of them. Bacon takes Plato's aristocratic archetype of the philosopher king a step further by having him promote knowledge and the application of new mechanical devices for the benefit of humanity. We have here, in embryonic form, the technocrat of modern times. I would like to come now to a fifth archetype in the disturbing personage of Faust, well known in Western European folklore from medieval times, who goes too far, rejects tradition and the authority of the Bible, and by means of trickery and self-betrayal, acquires the knowledge and power of the gods. According to the natural philosopher and classic romantic author, Johann von Goethe, writing in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, Faust's grasping character leads him to bargain with and ultimately sell his soul to the devil in exchange for power over a woman which proves to be both illusory and fleeting. So not only has Faust's proud quest of knowledge and absolute power, his arrogant defiance of the gods embittered and defeated him, not only has he lost his identity, but Faust, like Adam and Ulysses before him, 
has leapt across the barriers of what should be known. He has transgressed the divine order. He's cursed by the fact that he has two warring natures, a capacity for love and a restless inquiring mind. Because he ultimately yields to the snares of the devil, he thus serves as a warning of how the pursuit of knowledge can become a form of moral slavery, an obsession leading to personal destruction. like to mention now a sixth archetype and this one develops the theme of the moral slavery of the scientist a little further in his quest of absolute power. It's Mary Shelley's fictional character Victor Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. Writing in the early 19th century, Mary Shelley should be seen in the context of a romantic revolt against rationality and a no less romantic fascination with myths and the occult. In her novel, Frankenstein's inner being is in a state of insurrection and turmoil as he begins to understand that occult scientists are penetrating into the recesses of nature. Shelley personifies nature as a female, by the way. And these scientists show how she works in her hiding places. They ascend into the heavens. They've discovered how the blood circulates and the nature of the air we breathe. They've acquired new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. Now, Armed with this occult knowledge, Dr. Frankenstein contrives to sew together the lifeless, shriveled limbs and organs of various yellowing cadavers and infuses the electric spark of life into this appalling creation. But he recoils at the ugliness and evil of the demon he's brought into being. The monstrous creation comes to haunt its creator destroying and enslaving his life by turns. The Frankenstein myth is a powerful statement of the dangers man runs when he seeks the godlike stature of total knowledge and power, when the application of forbidden knowledge creates an out-of-control technology which returns to annihilate its creator.
I'd like to come now to a seventh and final archetype. This one is provided by Renan, Ernest Renan, who was riding the very crest of the wave of scientism in 1849 when he writes the following glowing, if not religious, passage about the role of the scientist in L'Avenir de la Science, the future of science. What could happen in a more advanced phase of intellectual culture, Renan writes, is that the emotion which gives rise to artistic and poetic composition, the penetration of the scholar and philosopher, the moral sensitivity of the great human being come together to form one and the same soul open to everything that is beautiful, good, and true. Moreover, he writes, this new personality is Christ, who would not represent solely the moral dimension to the highest degree, but also the aesthetic and scientific dimensions of humanity. Thus, Renan claims, the ultimate model for the scientist is Christ himself, who can be seen as an incomparable man, supremely enlightened, undogmatic, rational, without any prejudice or superstition, devoted to the free pursuit of knowledge. For a 19th century religious skeptic, bordering on messianism and atheism like Renan, this is quite an admission to make. It means that man, through the cultivation of science, can aspire to a godlike status. The ancient theme of godlike knowledge that had been developed in the book of Genesis now returned in the startling guise of critical rationalism. Renan seeks to establish science on an altogether new basis. Science will be free of what he considers to be the hindering influences of revealed religion, but it will be built up into a secular faith, which can be called scientism, and it will be bolstered by new myths like that of Christ the scientist. When compared to earlier archetypes of the scientist, Renan's model of the scientist offers certain novel features. The rationalistic Christ does not glory in the pathetic triumph of virtue, like Socrates. He does not dispense fraudulent counsel like Ulysses. He doesn't flirt with the moral slavery and self-destruction of Faust and Victor Frankenstein. Instead, the science-minded Christ of Renan's imagination has some of the benevolent power of Plato's philosopher king and Bacon's King Solamona. This scientific Christ has overcome humanity's lingering doubts and ambivalence about knowledge for knowledge's sake. He's closed the rift between revealed religion and science by making reason a religion in its own right, and he's redirected the religious impulse to the rational purposes of science. Many of the most interesting 19th and 20th century writings about science have not been the work of scientists at all. They've been produced by pamphleteers, science fantasy writers, people like Ernest Renan and H.G. Wells, who had some knowledge of science but whose main professional preoccupation was not the production of scientific research. Some of these writers have concentrated on what we may call the moral and allegorical dimensions of science by constructing scientific utopias and insisting that science finally 
in the apocalyptic time piled up in the future should be the model for social organization and even for individual behavior. speaking of the rift or conflict or competition between science and revealed religion. I'm not referring to those thinkers from Plato to Aristotle and up to Spinoza who believed in a philosophical god. If you would like to know more about my ongoing creative works, from books, translations, films, and blogs to Wild Trekker, check out my author's website at www.evidencia.net, and Evidencia is spelled E-V-I-D-E-N as in November, T-I-A, Evidencia, which is, by the way, the Latin for evidence. The opening theme at the beginning of each Wild Trekker podcast is sung by Marie Frenette, with me accompanying her on the piano. Now, here's Marie Frenette singing the closing theme of Wild Trekker, accompanied by Pascal Demel on the guitar. Let's get together soon. This Wild Trekker episode is copyright 2021, George Toombs. All rights reserved. Mm -hmm.